Good morning. Welcome to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Iberly. Dreams. Everyone has dreams. What if you're a young man from Jamaica? What would your dream be? Probably getting to the Olympics. You would think that a young man from Jamaica would have to go through that kind of situation through running, sprinting, being part of the track team. But what if I told you this young man made the Olympics, but not the Summer Olympics, the Winter Olympics, the Winter Olympics of 1988 in Calgary as a member of the Jamaican bobsled team. Yes, the Jamaican bobsled team, one of the original members. And please welcome my guest, Devin Harris. Hi, Devin. How you doing? Hey, John. How are you? Thanks uh, for having me on. Hey, man. It's my pleasure. I really appreciate it. Let me begin real quick. I want to get a little background with you here. Now, sure. you grew up in Kingston, Jamaica. Now, from what I understand, Kingston's a pretty rough neighborhood, correct? Well, there are some rough neighborhoods in Kingston, and um, I, and I grew up in one of those uh, neighborhoods. Actually, it was uh, the official name is Olympic Gardens. Oh, okay. So you know, as you can see, I was destined to be an Olympian, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I describe it though I, uh, to my friends who live in New York. I say, you know, Olympic Gardens uh, made the South Bronx look like you know Central Park. Uh, it was really rough, uh, impoverished, violent neighborhood. Now, you know, your life is really quite interesting. And I you know, did a little background, of course. Uh, you know, you're a former military officer, and we'll get more into that. You've come here, you live in the States, you have your own foundation, you're an international uh, motivational speaker. But what drives you to get out of the situation that you're born in? What makes you different from, we'll say, the other kids your age at the time. Mm -hmm. What separates you? You know, I, I just think it's, uh, I think we all, all of us, no matter where we grew up and no matter what our circumstances may be, you know, we do have that calling inside of us to, to uh, improve our situation. I just think that most people don't listen to to that call uh, and, and believe in their abilities, you know, and I, I'm not suggesting that I started out, you know, with the level of confidence that I have in my abilities today, but certainly as I grew up, um, you know, in, in Olympic Gardens, I was, you know, not very happy with, with my environment and wanted better, and so I, I just decided that I was going to... Uh, focus on two goals actually one was to become an olympian and the other was to become an army officer and those two things really drove me um really um you know lit the fire in, in me and you know one thing led to another and so here we are today well that's a great combination though Devin. i mean wanting to be a military officer is a tremendous goal it has its you know unique privileges to its unique status Combining that with wanting to be an Olympian, you're in the same situation. The military will work with you on that, and I think you found that out as you got deeper into your military career. But what did you apply? Now, you went to Sandhurst in England, which is one of the most incredible military academies ever created. I mean, the English know how to do it. Oh, yeah, the English know how to do it. What did you did you apply to there? Did someone see promise in you and say, "Hey, you know, we're going to send you there"? Because if you think about it, uh, here's a kid from Jamaica who ends up at Sandhurst in England. Now I know there's obviously a connection between the two countries, but still, it's a big jump. It, 
it really was. Um, you know, so so you're absolutely right. Jamaica is part of the Commonwealth, and you know, the, you know, our laws, our military, our educational system, it's all based on the British system, and um, so. You know, when I enlisted, as I mentioned before, one of my goals was to become an army officer, and that, you know, to get there was, um, you know, quite a difficult path. But when I, once I got in and I started my basic training in Jamaica, the next step was to become, uh, or get onto my officer training. And Sandhurst happens to be one of the places that the Jamaica Defense Force mm -hmm. sent its uh, officer cadets. Uh, to train, and so I was very fortunate to uh, have been selected to go to Sandhurst. Now, you had already gotten your undergraduate degree um, in Jamaica, or had you gone outside of Jamaica to uh, to get your degree? No, so, uh, again, we have a very different uh, educational system. Okay. So, um, you know, you finish high school with uh, what we call ordinary levels and advanced levels, which are exams that we take uh, coming from either the University of Oxford and Cambridge mm. or Cambridge. So on the strength of that, I'm able to enlist in the officer corps. And it's, so basically when I was at Sandhurst, I had the same academic qualifications as my British counterparts. Ah, now, did you? How did you feel leaving Jamaica, going to England, being a part of Sandhurst? Was this like a big culture shock to you, or did you take to it right away? You 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 hit the nail on the head there. Culture shock. Um, it was my very first time outside of Jamaica, and uh, you know, so here it is. Uh, you know, a kid from the ghettos, and you have to understand that. Um, you know, it was I was at Sandhurst uh, less than a year after high school. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so here here it is. Uh, you know, if you can think of all the different dimensions, and I'm from a country that's 98 percent black. Now I'm out of out of Jamaica, and you know, I'm just one of a handful of black guys who are at Sandhurst. You know, I'm no longer in an environment where I'm among Jamaicans, I'm among the Brits, and of course, the, the training itself was not a cakewalk. So you're, you're dealing with homesickness, you're dealing with the culture shock of just being in a completely different environment, and then you still have to focus on the goals that you went there for, to become an army officer. Um, so yeah, it was challenging. Now, it seems to me that the military was designed for you. You were born to it in the sense I get the feeling you like structure, you like to find goals. It fits who you are and where you were going, trying to, get, trying to become an Olympian. I mean, this seemed like tailor-made for you once you got comfortable and acclimated to where you were. Yeah, you know, and there's definitely something to be said about that. I mean, I, I think the military fit me in a number of different ways. And perhaps the first is just the idea of striving for something that uh, seemed impossible, that other people may think is impossible. Uh, because the truth is, you know, being a, a boy from the ghettos trying to become an army officer was not the norm. Um, it seemed, uh, it, you know, pretty much impossible, but I was able to strive and achieve that. And certainly the level of discipline and exposure um, and structure that you that you get exposed to in the military, the, the ability to, 
you know, go for really long periods with intense, uh, incredibly intense physical activity with very little rest. Oh, yeah, but you I also be get able to function. Oh, um, yeah, but you've probably also training. drawn off of that beyond your military career, beyond being Olympian. You've probably drawn off of your training over the years when it comes to other aspects of your life. You find an answer to something when everyone says there isn't an answer, I would assume. You're absolutely right. It, it really is how we operate. I mean, there's um, no thought of not achieving the goal. It's well, it's difficult. So what? Find a way um, to get it done. Uh, you know, and, and I often actually go back to my basic training in Jamaica and the motto at the training depot where we up, up, up in the mountains of Blue Mountains of uh, overlooking Kingston was. No task too difficult, no obstacles too obstacle too hard, you know, and um, that really I think sums it all up. Well, when you graduated from Sandhurst, you come back. You're part of the JDF, the Jamaican uh, Defense Force. What was your specialty for them? Were you handling weapons? Were you doing? Were you preparing for stuff like that? Was that your that your military officer career for a few years? Yeah, I'm, a, I'm an infantry officer, so, okay. you know, as a second lieutenant, I'm a, a platoon commander, so, you know, I'm, I am, what, 21 years old, um, or just short of it, and I'm leading 30 men, and, uh, you know, certainly training them in, in the art of war. I mean, that's what I'm schooled to do, right? I'm a, yeah. I like to say I'm a trained killer with a killer <laughs> smile. <laughs> That's a good way to be, though. It kind of it keeps people off balance. So you're a little bit into your military career, beautiful island to be on. You've accomplished one goal already, which is a tremendous goal. Now you're hearing rumblings about bobsled team, Olympics, Calgary, in Jamaica. I mean, it, it doesn't make any sense, I would assume. Mm-hmm. And kind of giving a step back to what happened here, the founders of this were George Finch, and William Maloney, uh, they were businessmen who kind of lived there in Jamaica, but definitely had business ties. And they witnessed what is very popular, I've come to understand in Jamaica, push cart racing. Can you please explain the thrill of push cart racing, please? Uh, well, if you have a, a penchant for the crazy <laughs> and the dangerous and, and madness, then push cart, or push cart derby is for you. It's not something I've ever done myself, quite honestly, because it's just you know too far out of left field for me. <laughs> <laughs> Wait a second, you went on a bobsled, but this is too well, much. You know, for you. that's more my speed. You know what I mean? <laughs> but the, the, the push cart is something that we use in Jamaica to transport wares in the marketplace, and every year they paint these things up and they race them down a winding mountain road. So you have two crazy guys, you know, darting <laughs> off the hill, you know, in excess of 40 miles an hour, hour around some, you know, sometimes, you know, hairpin turns. And yes, George and Will saw this, thought it looked like bobsledding, discovered that he needed, you know, obviously two guys in most cases, but the, that the start was really important in bobsledding and we had lots of sprinters. Well, that so was, they, yeah, that's the interesting part because when you start to break it down uh from what i understand there was like a uh you know pretty much a call out who wants to come and try out and again from what i understand no one showed and it appears to be that the military volunteered you dudley stokes (laughs) nelson stokes michael white 
And uh, they basically looked at you, as has been told to me in the service many times, this is what you are going to do. And well, my, you my guys did it. Well, my is kinder than that. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just says, uh, he, he calls me and he goes, uh, oh, tell Colonel Barnes that you'll be going out for the Boston team trials, you know? <laughs> so, I'm like, yes, sir. Well, <laughs> uh, you know, the thing, John, is, uh, you know, which we didn't talk about, uh, of course, our Olympic dreams, uh, it was 1987, and the Olympics were coming up in Seoul, Korea. So every morning before, you know, I reported for duty, I'd go, you know, run my five miles really quick, um, hoping to get fit enough to qualify for those Olympics. And, you know, while I, while I dreamt about competing there, and, you know, like I, 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 I like to say that, you know, I did compete in the 88 Olympics, but ahead of schedule. So yeah, you did. Well. Yeah, what was the, I don't know, the kind of fallout, if there was fallout, what are the people's thoughts in Jamaica, as word starts spreading, you know, we're putting a bobsled team together. The military has decided four of my our boys are going to handle it. No one's ever seen a bobsled before. What was your take, actually? I mean, what did you think? Did you, like, immediately go to the library and look up uh, bobsledding? Well, I knew, here's what I knew about bobsledding. I knew it was a winter sport. I knew it was fast. I knew it was dangerous. That was pretty much it. And when, when I first heard that we were going to have a team, I thought it had to be the most absurd, ridiculous idea ever conceived by man. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then once the colonel said, hey, you're going to the team trials, and um, so I was going. So I knew that once I'm there, I have to do my absolute best to make the team. And I began to see it as the wonderful opportunity that it was, my chance to represent my country in sports, my chance to compete at the Olympic Games, that it no longer seemed so absurd. Um, you know, within the military circle, it was just one of those things that was kind of accepted. You know, hey, no task so difficult, no obstacle too great, right? So That's it? <laughs> here we are. We're going to go do this thing. You and, do that. Um, you know, it's it's hard. Honestly, it was really hard to back then to put a gauge on what Jamaicans thought, because the truth is that most Jamaicans have never heard of bobsledding. And it wasn't until really after the Olympic Games, when you know, after people had seen this thing on TV a few times, that they began to at least grasp and on a basic understanding of the sport, but were so appreciative of what we did. That's what always what happens. Debbie, we're going to roll into a break, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to get to the, to the meat of what you experienced as an Olympian at the 88 Calgary Games. You're listening to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Devin Harris, one of the original members of the Jamaican bobsled team. We'll be right back. Drinking while you're pregnant can give your baby brain damage and breath defects, learning disabilities too. Look, here's the deal. If you drink alcohol while you're pregnant, you may be ruining your baby's chances of ever having a normal life. All forms of alcohol are dangerous, even beer and wine. Play it smart. Alcohol and pregnancy don't mix. This message is brought to you by the Chester County Department of Drug and Alcohol Services. For more information, please call toll-free 1-866-286-3767 or visit nofas.org.
It is with great pleasure that I welcome you to today's graduation ceremony. Students, uh, when you hear the reason or reasons for your absences throughout the years, please exit the auditorium without your high school diploma. Once you've exited, remove your cap and gown and proceed into the unknown. <clears throat> Too tired. Family trip. Part-time job. Helping around the house. Sick day. Starting the holidays early. Just because. Starting in the sixth grade, students who miss 18 days or more of school in a year for any reason will fall behind and risk not graduating high school. How many days of school has your child missed this year? Absences add up. Keep track at boostattendance.org today. Brought to you by the U.S. Army and the Ad Council. Hi, I'm Monica Potter from the hit TV show Parenthood, and you're listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Welcome back to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Devin Harris, one of the original members of the Jamaican bobsled team going back to the 1988 Calgary Games. Devin, um, besides talking about your Olympic background and so forth, you're also very much involved as a motivational speaker. Uh, you've written some books. You have some causes that are very important to you. Can you explain a little bit about that and maybe a website where we can find you? Sure. Um, so, as you mentioned, I'm a motivational speaker, and I'm very easy to find there. The website is devonharris.com. My name, DevonHarris.com. Um, you know, I started speaking just after my third Olympic Games in Nagano, '98, and uh, you know, I, I enjoy being on stage. I feel like I'm on purpose, and this this is what I was called to do. And I get a chance to travel the world and really share um, a lifetime of experiences about perse- persevering and pursuing your dreams and keep on pushing, as, as I like to say. And, and that also has taken me into this, this whole idea of giving back. I, I so believe that, you know, the children are the future. It's not just a cliche to me, but, you know, profound truth. And so I'm, I'm passionate about children's causes. Um, whenever I have a chance to um, participate and help out with anything that supports kids, I'm there. And so my foundation, the Keep On Pushing Foundation, uh, supports uh, the uh, the education of kids in disadvantaged communities. We work to find practical solutions to some of the things that are preventing them from getting educated. And so we, we have started our program at my old primary school in Kingston, actually, because mm-hmm. many of those kids were going to school hungry. And growing up in that environment, understanding how important an education is to escaping that environment, I wanted to do what I could to, to help. So we are... We are at keeponpushing.org. And, uh, you know, I've actually spent time traveling around the U.S. and a little bit overseas visiting our troops as well. That's, uh, you know, really near and dear to me, of course, as an ex-military, but as a civilian now who is enjoying really the liberties and freedoms that these brave men and women are sacrificing to preserve for us. I, uh, you know, really feel a duty and a calling to, 
go spend some time with them and express you know, our sincere gratitude and appreciation for all the sacrifices they have made. And, uh, and recently I, I got involved in uh, something called Project 10. And this is where we challenge people to, to lose 10 pounds or gain 10 pounds of muscle. We're really encouraging, um, you know, a healthy, a healthy lifestyle, fitness. And it, of course, appeals to me because I'm yeah, a, yeah. an Olympic athlete. You know, I want to see people transform their lives and, and live uh, healthy lives. But what's also amazing about that is that it touched this chord with me uh, because for every 10 pounds of weight that someone loses or 10 pounds of muscle that they put on, we donate 30 milkshakes, 30 <laughs> shakes to, to kids to help them in their fight against obesity as well. And um, so my challenge to everyone who is listening is to join me on the challenge. You know, visit the, my website, keeponpushingchallenge.com. And, yeah, come and join me on the challenge. Let's get fit and healthy together while at the same time helping some kids to get uh, fit and healthy as well. That is great. That's a great message, Devin. Devin, as this unusual dream starts to kind of take place in Jamaica, how did you guys practice, obviously without snow, without ice, without a true bobsled? I would guess that the... Push carts came in handy. Was it that hard to practice in that environment and then make the transfer over to an actual bobsled, or were you guys pretty comfortable in that process? Well, uh, you know, John, it, it was uh, a real challenge for us uh, only because we were starting the sport uh, in the team got selected in September 87. And at that time, we knew nothing about bobsledding, and the Olympics were in February of 88. And we had never been on a, on a sled before, never seen one and all that kind of stuff. But, but here's the thing. Bobsledding, the, the, uh, what we call the preparation or the training phase, runs from about you know, uh, end of March, early April, um, through to October. And that's your summer training season, so you're running, you're lifting weights, uh, you're pushing a makeshift sled, and most countries have a, 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 what we call a push track, it's really dry land training, um, just for the start, though. So it just so happens that in Jamaica we have summer all year round, so you know, we're at a, actually at an advantage yeah. in that respect. However, for the 80. 788 team, we only had a few months to kind of get this thing together. So that's what we did. We used to push three hours every afternoon during the week, six hours in a Saturday morning. We had this makeshift sled on wheels on the army base on this flat concrete surface, mm -hmm. and that's what we did. And then, like everyone else, you travel to the tracks. I mean, right now I think there are 17 tracks in the world. You know, four in North America. There are probably another four in Germany. You know, and the others are scattered all over the place. So if, think NASCAR. The drivers travel from track to track to race okay. and train, practice. And that's what we do in bobsledding as well. We travel from track to track um, to, 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 to do real bobsledding because that's the only place that they can actually bobsled. Now, Obviously, the start-off is very important. Getting that quick push 
so you get the momentum going. So obviously mm-hmm. you're looking at sprinters. I think Herschel Walker, uh, the famous football player here in the States who was also a track runner in college, I think he tried out for the U.S. bobsled team about a decade ago. Yeah, Herschel was actually on the 1992 team in Abbeville. I raced against him. Okay, so we know that powerful build, and you obviously have a very powerful build, and I'm going to make the comparison here. Anyone who's seen the movie Cool Runnings, uh, you want to concentrate on the character Yul Brenner, uh, the one that had the shaved head. That's pretty much Devin Harris uh, as he's being portrayed. Now, Devin, after you get the push going, how difficult is it to get four men you know, in coordination with each other into that sled and keep everything moving? Because split seconds make the difference, correct? That's that's absolutely true. And so it, it is challenging, you know. So uh, quick background on bobsledding for your your listeners. There are two kinds of bobsledding. There's a two-man and then there's a four-man. Four-man bobsledding is considered the premier bobsled event because it requires so much more coordination, as you say, John, to get four hawks trying to get on this tiny yeah. sled in a, in, a, in, sp- in a split second. You know? So it requires a lot of time on the push track before you get on the actual bobsled track, you know, practicing what we call your loading. And so that's where real teamwork and coordination comes into play. Now, what are you doing now? Of course, you have the driver up front, and you know his job obviously is to steer the course. Not an easy thing to do. What are the other three of you doing? Just kind of laying back and they're, hanging they're, on for they're dear by, life? They're, they're, by, they're praying. <laughs> <laughs> it looks. It looks no. exhilarating, though. Yes. It does look they, exhilarating. They're, actually, they're just sitting there uh, going for the ride. Uh, you know, so it's physics. You know, mass times velocity equals momentum. So, especially with a four-man uh, team, the the extra bodies really add, obviously, a whole lot more weight and causes the sled to go even faster. Um, but they're not. You know, people look at it and think the guys are leaning to the left and leaning to the right. They are not. They appear that way because when the sled gets up on the corner, everybody leans. That the sled leans, and so the guys lean. But their job is to sit as quietly, as still, and as squarely as possible in the back of the sled. So your job, the three guys more or less who are sitting, their jobs for the explosive start off. And let's make sure the driver gets in quick and easy and gets set. And you guys are just there for the ride for the next uh, 55 seconds or whatever. Exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that, that's pretty much it. Yeah, you want to get this thing going and then, you know, get, get in, sit down, hold on, shut up. <laughs> <laughs> now, how hard is it to coordinate four large men? I mean, you guys are sprinters you're built very muscular you're lifting weights how hard is it to get four large men into that bullet you know and that's the thing that's where practice comes in on the push trap before you get on the ice um you know what you spend a lot of time really getting the timing down uh, so that by the time you race day comes around, it, it, and when you watch it and when it works, it's like poetry in motion. It just works. It, it's, it's just it's a beautiful thing to see. Well, you know, I think, uh, I think American Express or someone did a commercial a couple years back, uh, maybe the previous Olympics, where they showed a bobsled team, probably the U.S. bobsled team, in that mode starting off. They slowed it down real nice, and they showed how... The push begins, 
then the coordinated moves of getting in, and then you see the driver pretty much taking control. I mean, people, it, it really is a brute force type of sport, but also has a lot of uh, agility to it to some degree. Yeah, uh, you know, I say to people all the time, and it's it's not obvious, but you know, I, I would say a bobsled athlete is as aggressive as say a football player. It's just that when when you're watching football and you see a guy hit another guy, you can see it because he's going up against someone else, and you you see and almost feel, you certainly hear the hit. Well, we are we are just a bunch of crazy guys when we're standing <laughs> at the start as well. I mean, the, there is so much contempt that you have for the sled, and you have to get yourself in that mental space in order to push this thing as hard and as fast as as we do. Um, but then it gets going, and uh, you know, you even as a driver, because I started out as a pusher, uh, then went to the front of the sled. Oh, jeez! And uh, you know, and I'm a madman at the start. But then once I jump and I land in the sled, I, I'm transformed in from this like crazy mad person pushing the sled to being calm, cool, and collected as I drive the sled. Excellent. That's what I want to get back to when we take this break. You're listening to Life on Edom, your host, John Aberly. Today, my guest is Devin Harris, one of the original members of the Jamaican bobsled team. We'll be right back. My name is Nicole Zell, and I'm the new host of Soundstage. Every Thursday from 4 to 5 p.m., we'll be featuring local musicians and upcoming artists. That's Soundstage, every Thursday, 4 to 5 p.m., with me, Nicole Zell, on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. Do you want to know what's going on with your favorite celebrities when it comes to entertainment, fashion, beauty, fitness, and lifestyle? Well, tune in for The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12. I'll even catch you up on childhood stars like Boy Meets World actor Will Friedle. By the time I hit 30, I stopped doing on-camera work entirely. I'm having too much fun doing the voiceover stuff. Find out the latest tour and album information from your favorite artists like pop sensation Carmen. When we were working on the album, we had so many songs recorded. Some of them sounded really fun and really Carmen, and I think a lot of the stuff that inspires us is really fun. Check out tips for balancing life as a working parent from people like actress Melissa Joan Hart. It was difficult because I was missing them a lot, but now we have decided to all get together more, and so we've been traveling back and forth across the country as a unit. Also, get motivated to get healthy with experts like Good Morning America contributor Tori Johnson. So I realized that rewarding myself with food is akin to an alcoholic celebrating a month of sobriety with a beer. And you never know what some of your favorite stars might say. The last time I was in Philly, they surrounded me and they were like, we love you on MTV, you're our favorite comedian. Aww. And I was like, Aww. So you don't want to miss all the action. Check out The Bryn Project every Wednesday at 12.15 and every Saturday at 12 right here on WCAG 1520 AM. I'm Courtney Thorne-Smith. You're listening to WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. Welcome back to Life on Edit. I'm your host, John Avery. Today, my guest is Devin Harris, original member of the Jamaican bobsled team. Right now, we're talking about being inside a bobsled, that powerful start you have to have, the coordination of four large men getting into basically a silver bullet, and then, you, of course, the front person being the driver. 
Now, Devin, you were saying before the break, you've done both. You've done the push, and then you've been the driver, and you said it really is two different personalities, isn't it? Yes, it is. I mean, there's a tremendous amount of aggression that's needed um, to move the sled, to get over the inertia. A four-man sled weighs about 650 pounds. And, you know, you're going from zero to 80 miles an hour in less than a minute. So, so you need that aggression. You need that effort. But once you get in the sled as a driver, you, you don't need that aggression anymore. You have to be calm. You have to be cool. You have to be collected. You have to be so focused. The, the concentration is so intense as you try to steer the sled down the track. Now, to me, it makes sense uh, your military background would come in handy here. You have to be aggressive but also be able to stop and think while doing it all simultaneously. Well, you're absolutely right. That is certainly something that um, I learned quickly at Sandhurst, you know, going, you know, uh, you know, hours on end uh, with intense physical activity and then being expected to think. I mean, sometimes being given written exams to do <laughs> at the end of a, uh, you know, a really long physical um, effort uh, because if the, their belief was that an officer has to be able to think even when he's tired. That is um, correct. And, and, yes, you're absolutely right. It plays out in bobsled driving as well. Didn't know when I was at Sanders, I was actually training to become an Olympic bobsledder, but, you know. <laughs> but it all pays off in the end. That's the yeah. beauty of it. Now, in 88, you were part of the four-man team. Then in 92 and 98, you did the two-man team. What was more difficult for you? Was it the two-man, the four-man? The two-man is the two-man was more difficult only because I was a driver then. Okay, it's more it's it's way more fun though. I mean, as a driver, <laughs> I think. I mean, you having I love the the I love being in a place where the responsibility is on my shoulders. I guess that's you know the leadership and the officer and me. Um, does it mean more work? Absolutely. A whole lot more work, but it's so much more fun as well. Now, when you get to Calgary, just out of curiosity, you land in Calgary. Uh, you know, I don't think you guys had a bobsled, correct? Did you have to borrow from a few uh, teams there? <laughs> Well, here's the thing. We had a two-man bobsled, and because uh, and, that's what we went there to do, the two-man. Okay. But in, uh, we did the two-man, and the Olympic Games, you know, obviously over two weeks, and um, the first week of the Olympics are the two-man event, and then the second week of the four-man event. So we did the two-man, and we're there with nothing to do. And in true Jamaican style, we decided that week that we would do the four-man event. <laughs> yeah, last minute for everything there. You got to. You know, but sometimes, and I think you'll agree with me, uh, the term I like to use, sometimes you have to go through something in a way like baptism by fire. You don't have a choice. You just have to rise above it. No choice. Yeah. I mean, well, there was, I guess, a slight variation in our case to that. We didn't have to do it, but we decided that we wanted to do it uh, because we were there. And, uh, you know, the... Yeah, it's, it's not arrogance, but it's certainly a naivety. We go, hey, let's do four months so we can all win a medal. <laughs> <laughs> no, you that's know? the beauty we, of it. We thought that was the fairest way. You know, winning a medal is a two-man. You know, only two guys would go home with a medal. So let's do four, man, and, and we all have, have a medal to go home with. Now, tell the audience, please, I, because, and I know they're as curious as I am on this one, 
what was it like for you? You do all the practicing first. You're on the, the push cart. You're on the doing the other stuff you've done in Jamaica. What was it like the first time actually in a real bobsled on a real track? Oh, my God. I was so scared. Um, I was a nervous wreck. I, and here's the thing. I look back now and I know... The others have to be lying, John. Not, I'm the only person who admitted that, that, that I was scared. <laughs> the others haven't yet, but they have to be lying. I know that. You know, but, um, so, and, and especially when you think about the fact that I was crawling in a sled behind a guy who had never driven one before. That's true. <laughs> that you, you know, you don't think about that. This is not someone who's actually been doing this for ten years. Exactly. You know, and I know because I've seen the film that people have been killed doing this thing. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and the truth is that I just resigned myself. I, I just said, you know what? If I die, I die. But I'm going. I'm going to do it. And um, by the third run. Uh, that first day, I, I mean, I was still scared to death, but I was hooked. I knew this is what I was going to be doing for a while. Yeah, the adrenaline rush took over, right? It, well, you know, something did. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's, it's either the adrenaline or just uh, I had a screw missing or something, you know, but, uh, you know, I, I was hooked. That's okay, though. That's Hey, if you gravitate towards something like that and it's in your DNA, you go with it. Now, in the movie Cool Runnings, as in any movie, uh, facts are played with, things are left out, things are put in to get a story, to sell the story. And Cool Runnings was a huge hit in uh, 1993, going into the winter of 94. John Candy starred as the coach. But some of the stuff is inaccurate, and I'm going to go through it a little bit. Now, in the movie, it's portrayed that the other athletes uh, competing uh, uh, in the uh, bobsled runs were... Not that nice to you, but in reality, that wasn't really true, was it? No, that wasn't true. I mean, the, the closest we came to people being, you know, quote-unquote mean to us was uh, our first um, World Cup race. The only one we did, actually, before we competed in the Olympic Games were in Austria. And the way it works is that, as you know, there's only one sled on the track at a time. So there's a start list, and you kind of move your sled up in line as the race progresses. And at one stage, you know, there were a whole bunch of sleds in front of ours, and we had to struggle to lift our sled mm -hmm. over the others. Mm -hmm. Now you could interpret that to mean, oh, the other guys were just being nasty. But the truth is, you know, we were inexperienced, mm -hmm. one. Two, all those other teams had a whole bunch of handlers. And so the athletes, the guys who were actually racing, were off preparing themselves while their handlers moved the, the sleds up. We, it was just us. So we had to be preparing and at the same time paying attention to the stylist to move our sled up. Well, so, you didn't know the protocol. Yeah, how are you expected? We were just learning. Yeah, so. yeah. I mean, you're expect, I mean, how are you expected to know exactly the little ins and outs, outs of a sport that you've never really participated in let alone go into the Olympics now. Well, this is true. And, uh, you know, so when, and I think any athlete will tell you that athletes generally don't treat each other that way. You know, they're not necessarily overly nice all the time, but they're respectful, you know. I think you have to be respectful for anyone that's diving into a bullet at 80, 90 miles per hour down in ice. But beyond that, I think athletes... In a lot of ways, like military people from different branches or from opposing sides, there's always a respect built in because 
one side knows what the other side is going through and vice versa. We've all been there in one form or another. Uh, yeah, yeah, and you're absolutely right. And, you know, if I could, uh, I'm probably going to take you off your your line of questioning a bit. But, you know, back in 88, for example, because people ask all the time, you know, what's your most memorable uh, moments in the Olympic Games? And I remember in 88, it was the height of the Cold War. And, you know, being army trained, you're taught that, you know, everyone behind the Iron Curtain was evil. And here I am in the Olympic Village coming face-to-face with these guys and recognizing that we, we were all so much alike, more alike than we, we thought were different. Because I understood exactly what it took for them to get there, and they understood the same about me. Now, throughout the, uh, the four-man bobsled competition in Calgary, you guys were doing okay. You were progressing. Your times were getting better. Uh, people were noticing your tremendous push-offs, the power that you brought to, uh, to that particular segment of the race. Um, but that last run, or third to last run, uh, second to last run, there was the unfortunate crash. Do you know exactly what happened at that moment? Did you figure that out? Did you guys sit down and go, hey, this is what happened, or is that still a mystery to some extent? No, I mean, you exactly what happened. Uh, well, here's the thing that I think everyone has to realize. Prior to the race, or leading up to the race, we only had four eight practice runs, two, four days of training, two runs per day. As I mentioned earlier, we were at the Olympic Games and we decided that we were going to do the four-man. So the Olympic race was the first time we were even remotely testing ourselves as a four-man team. And um, the, the first day, the first two runs on the first day, were the starts were okay. Um, there was one, I think the second run where, you know, Michael was still standing up as we headed, headed into the second corner. His spikes were stuck in my legs. That's why. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and on that third run, John, it all came together. I think, you know, all the hours we spent, you know, three hours every afternoon, six hours in a Saturday morning, it just came together. And we came off the hill with the seventh fastest start time. And uh, Dudley, the driver, I think, was essentially seeing a, a, a brand new trap because he was going faster than he had ever gone before and in the Olympic race, you know. And um, so basically we were just too high at the end of corner nine, the Chrysler. It's a 270-degree turn, wow. and there was just nowhere left for us to go but over. Wow. So that was, well, we're going to roll into a break again. We're going to pay some bills here, Devin. When we come back, I want to explore the crash just a little bit more and then a few other things I want to go into uh, concerning your post-Olympic life. You're listening to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Devin Harris, one of the original Jamaican bobsled team members. We'll be back in a moment. What do I want? I want to be seen faster. I want to spend as little time in the waiting room as possible. Less waiting. More taking care of me. At Brandywine Hospital, you'll find a 30 minutes or less ER service pledge. 30 minutes or less? You can even find our average ER wait time online or with your mobile device. Don't wait when you need care fast. Turn to Brandywine Hospital. Learn more at brandywinehospital.com. 
PAMatters.com is the exclusive home for Radio PA's Ask the Governor program, now brought to you by the Pennsylvania Manufacturers Association. This is Governor Tom Corbin. Each month, we'll talk about the issues that affect you on Ask the Governor. You can submit your questions today by visiting PAMatters.com. Each month, Governor Tom Corbett joins us in studio for a one-hour conversation, including answers to your questions and comments submitted to PAMatters.com. To take part, just go to PAMatters.com and click on the Ask the Governor link at the top of the page. Fill out the form with your brief question or comment and click submit. It's just that simple. Or you can send a direct email to askthegov at pamatters.com. That's askthegov, G-O-V, at pamatters.com. Stop by pamatters.com today and send in your question. You can also access archived video clips from past Ask the Governor programs and other features from the Radio PA Newsroom. Be sure to bookmark pamatters.com and also join us on the PA Matters Facebook page. pamatters.com. People. Politics. Pennsylvania. Hi, everybody. This is Nancy O'Dell from Entertainment Tonight, and you are listening to WCHE 1520 AM. Enjoy. Welcome back to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is Devin Harris. He is one of the original members of the Jamaican bobsled team. Devin, real quick again, please give us your website. Uh, a quick overview of what you're working on, one of your personal projects, please. Sure. Uh, uh, for my speaking, it's DevonHarris.com. Um, for my, and by the way, that's where you can also get copies of my book, Keep on Pushing Hot Lessons from Cool Runnings, and my children's book, Yes, I Can, the story of the Jamaica bobsled team. So that's DevonHarris.com. My foundation is KeepOnPushing.org, so you can get some background information on our on what we're doing. Um, I also made donations. And then for Project 10, where we are challenging and encouraging people to to live fit and healthy lives, you know, lose 10 pounds at a time, you know, or gain 10 pounds of muscle, and we will, uh, not only will you feel great, look awesome, but we'll also get a chance to uh, donate meals to kids so that they can fight their obesity issues as well. And that's keeponpushingchallenge.com, keeponpushingchallenge.com. Excellent foundation there. Before we took the break, we were talking about the unfortunate crash that you and the team took in the 88 Olympics. Everything seemed to be going so well up to that point, but it happened. But what I'm curious about, and I think my audience is too, what's it like to crash in a bobsled with three other people going down an icy hill? Yeah. So, you know, I don't know if I describe it as unfortunate, but it certainly was spectacular. Okay. Okay. So it's spectacular. <laughs> you know, What's but, happening um, to you, you know, though? It, yeah. it, it certainly isn't the recommended way to go down the track, for sure. And, you know, in our case, as I mentioned earlier, we were right at the end of the corner. Um, and at the point where the sled should have been going down and off the corner, it was going up. And there was just nowhere left to go but over. Mm. And when you're crashing, the, you first feel the sled. It's like you're in, a, in slow motion. The sled moves really slowly, almost like you're in the twilight zone in an out-of-body experience. And, then, and you feel it, it, the sled flip slowly, and then it slams into the ice, and you are kind of jolted back into reality. And you hear, for me, the worst part, the scraping of the fiberglass on the ice. 
you can smell the fiberglass burning. The sled is made of fiberglass, mm-hmm. and you you know flashes of white as a, as you race over the ice on your head. And generally speaking, there's nothing you can do but ride it out. I mean, wherever whatever position your body is in, that's kind of where you're going to remain until the sled comes to a stop. Yeah, when I when I've seen you know unfortunate accidents. Uh, bobsled, two man, four man. Uh, what's the one they call the skeleton? That's the one man oh, yeah. dude. Those guys are crazy. Oh, that's insanity. <laughs> Which is the one that goes face down? Yeah, that's skeleton. Yeah. See, that's and crazy. Then lose, to me. You go feet first. Yeah, I, I don't know what's more scary, face down or feet first. You know, uh, give me bobsledding any day, man. I love company. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, you, you you guys made a name for yourselves. That's for sure. You made a big name for the country. A lot of pride. After you left the 88 games, you come home. What was it like to come home? What was it like to go back to Jamaica? And how did it change the course for the rest of your life? Well, you know, you know as you know, I was in the Army. And um, I kind of saw, in a way, my bobsled, my bobsledding career as an extension of my Army service. So literally, I took my bobsled uniform off, put my Army uniform back on, and went to work. Um, you know, having said that, I mean, we, we, you know, I got pulled away from duties, you know, quite often to go do, especially back in 88, whole bunch of promotions on behalf of the Jamaica Tourist Board. Um, you know, so I guess I was living the life of a star, although I did not necessarily <laughs> see myself as one. Um, certainly, you know, Jamaican, uh, and Jamaican, Jamaicans, you know, were, uh, incredibly appreciative of what we did, very proud of the effort. Um, but we on the team, we weren't satisfied. We had crashed, and so there was no doubt that we were going to come back um, and, and compete in the Olympic Games. I think the most profound impact being on the team had on me was you know, not the fact that I was an Olympian or um you know, they eventually made a movie uh, about the whole experience. Although all of that stuff is cool, I think the the, the, the biggest impact was just um, uh, a reinforcement in my belief um, that you know whatever you put your mind to, no matter how difficult or impossible it may seem, or how much other people may think it's a joke and, and laugh at you, if you really you know put your heart into it, it can be done. Now. When Cool Runnings was being made and, and they came to Jamaica, were you and the other guys brought in as consultants at all? Did you guys get anything out of this movie other than just the story being told? <laughs> well, you know, John, we, we actually made several trips up to New York met with the writers. Um, they took copious notes, and my guess is that after we left the room, they kind of threw it away and go, what a load of crap, let's write something <laughs> sensible, you know, entertaining. Um, it took about five years uh, for, the, for the movie to be made, and yeah, every six months or so you'll hear, oh, they're filming, oh, they're not filming. And so it was, uh, you know, really nice when they eventually, um, you know, started uh, rolling the, the, the cameras. Um, so it, so, so it was wonderful, and it is wonderful to have a movie made about you. Most people think that we are incredibly rich because, uh, you know, the movie was so successful, but that's uh, actually further from the truth. Uh, you know, the way the contract was written, um, mm. you know, uh, Mickey Mouse, I understand, how still holds the bag, and I'm, I'm trying to find him so I can get my... You shirt. know, that's, you know, you know something, and... and, and 
I feel bad there because it's done more often than not that way, and it's your life story. It's your teammates' life story. Uh, someone made a lot of money off of telling what you experienced, the heart, the, the soul, the blood, everything that you guys put into it. And you're right. It's a contract that would take, I don't know, a physicist to figure out. Yeah, well, you know, I, I just write it off as a, a very expensive lesson. And I don't think it will happen again to us. But, um, yeah, we certainly learned a, a, a very expensive lesson there. And I hope that's the truth because I've seen this many times. But on a positive note, though, um, you know, it really did change the course of your life in a lot of ways. I mean, you never would have thought of being or had a reason to be a motivational speaker before, correct? No, this is true. And, uh, you know, one of the lines I use, you know, when I speak uh, sometimes is, you go as far as you can see, for when you get there, you'll see further. And, you know, we started this conversation uh, speaking about my upbringing. And when, you know, I lived in Olympic Gardens and I peered out beyond my circumstances then, the furthest I could see was the officer corps of the Jamaica Defense Force. And then, you know, I got there, I got to that mountaintop, and I started peering out some more, and, you know, I, I saw a little, I was able to see a little bit further, and I went there, and, you know, one thing led to another, and here we are having this conversation. There you go. And the one thing I like, you know, dream big, uh, that comes from the character, uh, Yul Brenner, that is you know, somewhat coordinated with you in the movie Cool Runnings. You speak of dreams. You speak of persistence. But let me ask you a better one, because this happens more often than not. How do you handle failure? How do you handle getting back up mm-hmm. and keep moving forward? Because as you know, I know, a lot of people know, there are people who fail once, they never get back up. They fail twice, three times they quit. But there's the ones that seem to keep getting up and getting up and getting up and moving forward. I think you have to um, accept that failure is uh, a, a part of the success journey. There's no way you're going to achieve any real measure of success without uh, some failures along the way. Um, so the key here is not to see yourself as a failure, but to see the results that you got. You know, you took some actions and you created some results with that. So that failed doesn't mean that you're a failure. I mean, when, when we're in, uh, driving a bobsled and we crash, I mean, yeah, it's a, it, it was a failed run doesn't mean that you're a failure as a bobsled driver. So you figure out, you know, what, what did I do wrong here? And, and what do I need to do to fix it? And then you simply fix it and you, you keep on pushing. You, you, you keep going and, uh, and, and eventually you start getting the successes that you want. Well, there you go. You step back, you reassess, and you move forward. Now, we got about four minutes left, so I definitely want to hit this one, though. For you, Devin, for you, what is your personal process, your personal step-by-step way to go about reaching a goal, whether it's sports-related, whether it's business-related? Do you have the same process each time, utilizing maybe visualization, uh, past experiences, and different formats that you bring in for you? Completely. I think the first thing is to, to be clear uh, to be very clear about what it is that you want. Because, uh, you know, once you know where you're going, then you can actually start heading towards that, that spot. Um, so once I've decided what I want, uh, I kind of find myself, 
just thinking about it incessantly because that that develops the, the the desire and the drive and the passion to 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 go pursue it and then you start figuring out well what is it what is it that i need to do to get there understanding that you will not get there in one huge jump you know um so so you have to be what i call patiently impatient you have to um work assiduously work with a sense of urgency but also understanding that it's going to take you a little time to get from where you are to where you want to be and as you um you make small progress uh, you know it builds your confidence and even when you face some setbacks the fact that you have this thing in your mind so clearly and uh you know and you understand and accept that you're going to have some setbacks you keep pushing it's the little victories along the road that add up, correct? The ones that keep you motivated. Yes. It builds confidence. It builds um, self-esteem, and it builds competence. Devin, real quick, you've got about a minute. Please, again, give us your your website and your foundation site so that people know. I appreciate that. Mm -hmm. Uh, So uh, for my speaking, for my books, um, for my seminars, it's Devon, D-E-V-O-N, Harris, H-A-R-R-I-S dot com. For my foundation, it's keeponpushing.org, keeponpushing.org. And for Project 10, for your health and wellness, for getting fit and living a really healthy life and looking fabulous while, while you're doing it, <laughs> um, it's keeponpushingchallenge.com, keeponpushingchallenge.com. Devin, I really appreciate you coming on. You gave a great message today to my audience, and I learned a lot more about the Jamaican bobsled team experience than I knew from the movies or even my research. Hey, John, it was wonderful being on here with you, and I appreciate the time. Thank you, my friend. You have a good weekend. We've been li- you you've been listening. Thank you. You've been listening to Life Unedited. I'm your host, John Averly. My guest was Devin Harris today. He was one of the original members of the Jamaican bobsled team. I'll be back next week.